Thanks so much for joining us this morning at Northwest Community Church. My name's Jerry, uh, one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to open God's Word with you here this morning from Acts chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and open that up and get ready for Acts chapter 4, we're going to be starting in, uh, in verse 23 here in just a minute. So I did want to uh, bring a little bit of an illustration to you. If you are new to us here at Northwest, we have been going through the book of Acts you know, it's funny because we are looking at the book of Acts as something to be an example for us. Not just, oh, this is a great story, but how can we as individuals and as a church, how can we be just like these guys were? Because this was the church in its infancy, in its inception, the way God wanted it to be in its purity and in its power. And what's happened is over these thousands and thousands of years, through many, many black eyes on the history of the church, we are to where we are today. And the American church is one that I have given my life to, but one that is fairly weak, I think many would agree. We are beat up in the media. You know, it can be pretty discouraging. I was actually listening to a message on a podcast from a pastor's conference, and the guy said, so here, here's a conference like encourage these pastors, right? And the guy said, you know, studies show that 85% of the people in your church will never truly make any major change in their life. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, thank you for those words of inspiration. Can you imagine? I don't know where this guy got this and it seems really hard to figure out, but he said it. And anything that you hear must be true, right? No, but... Can you imagine that? 85% take this room. So 85% is probably like this chunk of very good looking people right here. To imagine that like if myself or Matt or whoever, whatever pastors here in this church for years and years and years and to think that potentially 85% of people are never going to make any real change in their life is pretty discouraging. Again, I have no idea where this guy got this statistic, but I just want to tell you here this morning that our prayer is at Northwest Community Church that nothing like that's going to be true. That we could even say, hey, 100%, 100% of the people that come have made significant change in their lives. Not because of great teaching or great messages or great programs, but because of the Spirit of God working through His Scripture, empowering people to go make a difference, to be a light in the world. So here's a little illustration that I have for you that came to me as I was thinking about this early church. What we see here in the early church is Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Uh, you know, early on they were empowered. Acts chapter 2, you see this beautiful display of God's power and God's goodness. And there's worship and there's prayer and there's sharing. And there's all kinds of an incredible sense of awe and wonder among the early church. And God was adding to their number daily. Thousands of people. Things are going really well. Right? And then we see some tension start to happen in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. So I've got this little illustration of a rubber band. We are in a high school, so many of you are familiar with what's going to happen next. But we got this rubber band, and we know what happens when there's tension on a rubber band, right? Like, this right here is not really going to do that much damage, right? Like, that's nothing. But if I got a little tension in the mix and aimed it at somebody, you know that the more tension there is, the more trajectory there is, and the greater opportunity to shoot something farther and farther and farther out. Nice catch. 
Did you get that? Oh, no, he missed it. If you're just listening at home, you're, you're missing something else. But anyway, so we know about that. We understand that, and right? And here's what we see in the early church. Acts chapter 3 and the beginning of Acts chapter 4. There is tension. There is a stretching of the church. Because now it's not just, oh, we're gathering together, we're worshiping together, we're praying together, we're singing, we're sharing all of our stuff. This is all wonderful. You know, let's just sing Kumbaya and this is so wonderful. We're on the mountaintop experience here, right? Now they're actually being stretched because Peter and John are away from the rest of the crew and, and they heal a man. That's what we talked about the last two weeks. And all of a sudden there's all this tension. They get thrown in prison and they get in trouble for doing something good. And here's what I've seen in my own personal life and and certainly in the life of the early church, certainly in the life of our church. When we go through difficult times, when there's some tension on it, that certainly can help us get to a farther trajectory and propel us into something greater and better. But you know what else? When you're pulling this too hard, maybe you've had this happen where it accidentally just kind of breaks or snaps your own finger Right? You ever see those uh, episodes of um, America's Funniest Home Videos with some poor soul and they're holding on to that, you know, that water balloon thing and there's two guys like that and somebody pulls it way back and like gets such tension on that thing that it comes right back and hits them right in the face. You know what I'm talking about? You seen those? When there's tension, when they're stretching, you try and make some progress. This is what they're trying to do, but this thing can somehow, sometimes come back and smack you right on your heels. And over and over and over again, that's what we see. The church is starting to make some progress. They're healing people. Message is getting out. Yet the enemy is almost like coming right behind again, almost like an elastic band and smacking them right in the heels. And trial and tribulation come right on the heels of success. So what we're going to be talking about this morning here from Acts chapter 4 is the idea of boldness and diving into the question How was these guys and and, and women and these people in the early church, how were they so bold? Because I don't know about you, but certainly in my story, there are many times that there's an opportunity given to step up, to stand up, to speak the truth, to share the gospel, and yet somehow there's these emotional or intellectual barriers that keep you from stepping up and doing what's right. I can remember one time when I was in high school in New Jersey, it was in my art class. I remember it like it was yesterday, and there's 25 or 30 students in there, and the teacher had gone out for 10 minutes or so, and we were just doing our things, getting our supplies together, whatever, and somebody's like, hey, let's turn on the radio. So they flip on the radio, and it was a commercial, so they just turned it up really loud, let's see what station it is. We're doing our stuff, the station comes back on, and it's a Christian radio station. And it wasn't even like a cool one. Like we have now, like K-Love or, you know, some of these other like more hip ones. This is like an old school Christian radio station. You know what I'm saying? Where the guy talking sounded like he was 85 or 90 years old. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, he's like, well, you know, the Bible says and, you know, Philippians. He starts preaching all this stuff. And, and these are, you know, secular high school. And people are like, what the heck is this? And then somebody jumps up and he's like, hey, Jerry, isn't this the stuff that you believe? And so there it was, it's like there was a stage and like the spotlight was on and the microphone was on, you know, metaphorically. And it was like I had the perfect opportunity and everybody's looking at me to be like, yeah, well, actually, you know what? This is what I believe, you know, and there's a lot of crazy cookies in the body of Christ. But 
I believe that the Bible is real and I believe that God invades our lives and that he demonstrated his love for us through Jesus and like perfect opportunity on that stage, on that platform to share a testimony. But instead I'm like, ah, well, you know, I mean, something like that. (laughs) Let's go ahead and just change the channel. And man, I could look back over my life, even recently, even as a pastor, there's always that little bit of fear like, all right, well, how much do I really say when I'm talking to neighbors or when I'm talking to the server or when I'm talking to somebody? How much do I share about the gospel? Here's the thing, guys. We have got to understand as a church that we can do good works all day long and it's, the good works are not going to get us in any sort of trouble. It's the name of Jesus. Do you know what I'm saying? We saw that even last week, right? Because remember Peter and John, they healed this man and they even said like, if we are here because of a good deed done to this crippled man, then that's ridiculous. Of course they weren't there for that. They didn't get in trouble for that. We could really impress our friends at school and our neighbors and people in our workplace if we're talking about, hey, you know what? I serve at White Oak Foundation. It's this great opportunity where they help lots of folks that really need it. And I go there and I put boxes together and I serve people and I help people. Or, man, this summer I'm going to Haiti and it's going to be a great chance to plant trees and to dig latrines and to run programs for kids. And people are going to applaud that all day long. Or man, this summer I'm going to be going to a special needs camp and I'm volunteering for the entire week to be a one-on-one buddy with somebody who really could use some help and some encouragement and give them the week of their life. There's nobody that's going to persecute you for that. But when you start to mention the reason that you're doing this is because Jesus loved me and Jesus told me that I exist to bring a light into the world, to bring his light into the world. So I'm going to do all these things to share the love of Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus with people that need it. Oh, and by the way, can I share this with you too? That's when the barriers are gonna go up, right? And that's the point that we find so difficult to step over. And this morning, what we're going to be examining is how did these guys respond with such boldness to do not only great things, but to give a great message as to the motivation of why they did these great things as well. So here in Acts chapter 4, I've broken it up into four very simple points, and I just want to dive into the text here and dive into these points one by one. The first thing, if you're taking notes, how were these guys so bold? How did they do it? Number one, they relied on their spiritual family. They relied on their spiritual family. Let's dive into the text, verse 23. It says, and when they, remember Peter and John, were released from prison, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now I need to tell you that term friends right there is a little bit of a poor translation. At least it's not as full a translation as it could be. Because in the original Greek, it's not really friends, just like, hey, you and I are friends. The real translation means they went back to their own. They went back to their own people. And what's implied there from other times throughout Scripture that that same terminology is used, that they went back to their family. They went back to their spiritual family. The word oikos, that is a Greek word that means household. And this is really important for us. They went back to their spiritual household. 
They had such a relationship with those people that immediately they went back and reported back to them what had happened. Now, Jesus gave us the example of how important this truly is, where he elevated his spiritual family, his spiritual household, even above his physical household. Okay, so here in Luke chapter 8, verse 19 to 21, perhaps you remember the story. Jesus was just starting out his ministry. Lots of people were coming to him. He had already had his band of disciples that became his spiritual family. And these people were following. They crowded out the house. And his real mother and real brothers were trying to get in to talk to him, right? So let's pick it up. It says, then his mother, that's Mary, and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you, verse 21. But Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Anybody like to, you know, <laughs> insult mom like that? She's waiting to see, it's like, uh, sorry mom, these are my other moms over here. Right? That's like, yikes, well, what are you saying? Well, of course your physical family's important, desperately important. But what Jesus is saying here is, you know what? I've also got a spiritual family. And these are the ones that I am elevating up to this point to share in my life and to share in my journey. Every bit as equal, if not even sometimes more so than my physical family. So my question to you here, even this morning, is do you have a sense of that spiritual family? I was reading one author and he was talking about the, uh, the American church in particular and he was talking about how we're so individualistic. Uh, everybody's got their own rooms and everybody's got their own hobbies and kids go off to college and then, you know, whatever. And it's just so tough to, to really have a sense of, um, of true family in the nuclear family, in your own family, let alone stepping out into a spiritual community. And here's what he said. I thought this was interesting. He said, oftentimes people will ignore the Christian community, and they won't get involved in a community group or a life group, we would say. They won't pursue church membership. They won't get in a relational connection with God's people, and then something happens. It could be something good, like, hey, we're getting married. We need premarital counseling. Or it could be something bad, like, I got cancer. We're getting a divorce, or I lost my job. And then people run to the church, and they want to microwave relationships. I thought that was such a powerful term. Can you just please give me close friends whom I can totally trust and lean on so that they can do the same for me, and I'd like that all today. What we see here for Peter and John is they already had this spiritual family. They already had that group of people that they were close with before disaster happened or before they really needed them. It was amazing, we were just talking this last week in our men's fraternity about the importance of this and our dedication to each other and our fervent, extravagant, self-sacrificing love that we need to have for each other to build up this foundation so that we could survive when we're lonely and when we're struggling. And in our men's fraternity, we're studying in the middle of um, 2 Timothy, and we came across this incredible passage at the end of 2 Timothy. So here's Paul, one of the greatest theologians, and wrote over half the New Testament, and here we find him in a jail cell, now all alone. Everybody else had deserted him. So where's his spiritual family? Well, he mentions one of them, and it's pretty powerful. Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, 
for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. So may the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered to me at Ephesus. Paul saying, this guy loved me so much when I was at my worst, when I was all alone, when I was depressed and in chains. He searched me out. He wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't afraid to enter in at those vulnerable moments. And it says that he refreshed me. He encouraged me. He shared truth with me. You have those kind of people in your life? That's the way the early church was. And that's what we need to be as well. Point number two. What else? How were they so courageous? How were they so bold? They recognized God's sovereignty in their situation. Now this is so monstrous and so rich in this text here. Let's continue reading in verse 24. And when they, that is the spiritual household, all the people that loved Peter and John and were there as part of the early church, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, And by the Holy Spirit said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I want to park on that word here in point number two. They recognized God's sovereignty. That's a pretty powerful word and basically carries along the idea of somebody who is ultimately in control. And so these guys together raise their voices and recognize that we are talking about the God who is ultimately in control. And notice the description that they go through there. And this echoes so many other great prayers of the Old Testament saints, Nehemiah and so many others. Where it's not, you just go right into it and okay God, here's what I need, here's my laundry list. But it's let me take a moment and recognize God that you are sovereign. It says sovereign and then Lord, which is doubling down on essentially the same thing. Sovereign, you are the one that's in control of everything. And Lord, by definition, means the one who's in control. This is who we're talking to. This is who we're praying to. He says the one who created the earth and everything in it. The one who created the sea and all the fish in the sea. They're like going through the whole steps of creation. This is the powerful God that we serve. He's a maker. He's a planner. He's providential. And I love here that they quote back to Psalm 2, that little section there, why did the Gentiles rage? They quote all the way back to something that was written by the psalmist almost a thousand years ago that is along the same lines. Why do people think that the power of their government The power of their laws, the power of their regulations in their office can be more powerful than the one who created them. And that word sovereign is one, again, I don't know what comes to your mind. When we were in Michigan, there was a bank that was called the Sovereign Bank. Anybody ever heard of the Sovereign Bank? Like, can you imagine those guys in the boardroom being like, all right, we gotta gotta come up with a name for this financial institution. Let's call ourselves Sovereign. We are over everything. We know everything. We are all powerful. 
I recently found that they changed their name because I'm like, I don't want some bank that thinks they can, you know, own everything. Isn't that what all banks think, by the way? Sorry, financial joke, mortgage joke there. But anyway, we get the idea that these guys recognize that they're not sovereign. Right? They mention these two leaders, Pilate and Herod. Guess what? Those guys thought that they were sovereign. They thought they controlled everything, life and death and laws and culture and cities. They thought they controlled it all. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they thought they were sovereign. We've got the ability to judge for ourselves who gets put in prison, who gets killed, all these things. The Romans thought that they were sovereign. Everybody's saying, I want to be in control. And these guys are saying, you know what? We recognize that we're not in control and God that you are in control. Boldness comes from recognizing that you're not in control, but that there is somebody who is in control. Now skip down. This is so huge in verse 27. And what I love about this prayer is that these guys, you know, sometimes we make fun of, of how we pray. At least I do. I find myself talking to God. And I'm like, all right, Lord, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but, you know, my car broke down last week. Like, it was the right axle, you know. And it, I remember when I ran over that thing. Yep, well, okay, so that's broken and it needs a repair. And so I'm going to bring it over. And it's like you're informing God of what's going on. You know what I mean? And you ever step back and be like, God already knows all that stuff. Why am I feel like I'm informing him what's happening with all these minute details? But you know what? In the early church, they kind of made the same mistake, right? So it gives you hope. In verse 27, here's what they pray. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you've anointed. God's like, oh yeah, that's right, I did. Both uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate, oh yeah, those guys. Yeah, I did put them in control. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Notice verse 28 though. Do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a monstrosity for us guys. Because it says these guys recognized that even in the course of evil, there was not complete chaos. Someone was still in control. The prayer said, Okay, Lord, we're being persecuted. These guys, our friends, just got thrown into prison. And man, over the next couple of years, we can only imagine what unspeakable horrors are going to be done to us. Remember, this is Peter and John. This is their spiritual family, all right? We know Peter was married because we know Jesus went to his mother-in-law's house. I'm sure that was a lovely experience, right? But we know Peter was married. So just imagine Peter's wife is there. Their other friends are there. Maybe their kids are there. And can you imagine, you know, thinking like, okay, hey, Peter, you know what, honey, Pete, baby, can you just do me a favor and like just tone down the Jesus stuff a little bit? You know, like healing and everything, helping people, giving money to the poor. Yeah, that's all great. But can you just tone down the gospel side of it? Because that's really what seems to get people agitated. No, the attitude was. No matter what evil is there, no matter who's in control, Herod, Pilate, this city, disruption, threats, whatever it is, they're saying, Lord, it's by your hand that you allowed them to be in control. And so we're trusting in your sovereignty at this moment. What an incredible breath of freedom to know that someone is in control. You see this over and over in scripture, guys. 
But you talk about boldness and you talk about fear and you talk about how to overcome and we could recount dozens of stories all throughout the Old Testament about seeing God's sovereign hand no matter what. And a passage that I love to come back to is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. After Joseph had been mistreated, had been betrayed, and the family was broken up, left for dead, sold off for money, uh, falsely accused, thrown in prison, and finally, decades later, his brothers come back and realize that he was the one providing for them. And he said, Genesis 50, verse 20, it's okay, don't be disheartened. Don't be dismayed. Don't be upset. What man meant for evil, God still meant for good. Even in this tension, even in difficulty, our platform is going to be that much more elevated and we've got an opportunity to be bold and to share truth and to allow the Holy Spirit to well up within us this courage that would not be accessible if the situation was not so dire. You see that tension there? I can only imagine what some of those people in that, in that early church were like, ah, let's go back to where we were just all worshiping and praying. That was a lot more comfortable. But that's not what we're called to do. Check this out, point number three. Why were they bold? They recognized that success was boldness, not deliverance. Success was found in boldness, not deliverance. Read verse 29. It says this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I want us to notice this point here because their prayer wasn't oh god would would you please allow it legally um, and politically to be okay for us to share the gospel lord would you please allow us not to get arrested again would you please allow us to have good welcoming conversations about gospel truth i mean those things are all fine to pray for but that's not what they prayed they didn't pray for deliverance instead they prayed for boldness. So that can look a lot of different ways for many, many different people. When you think about the element of crippling fear that potentially could make our church or any other church only 15% effective and everybody else just stays comfortable and where they are, never jumping over and overcoming those fears like these guys did. That can, that can take a, you know, that, that, that can look like a lot of different things. And this week, um, I don't know if you saw it or not, but we saw an incredible illustration of gospel boldness. I don't know if this showed up in your Facebook feed like it did for mine, but there's a young lady by the name of Rachel Delhalander. There's a picture of her on the screen. She was a, a gymnast in, in one of hundreds that was brutally and awfully abused at the hands of a doctor that she trusted. Now, Rachel also happens to be a believer. And Rachel happens to believe that her life is meant for more and that even though this was awful and tragic and unspeakable, that this could actually be perhaps 
a platform in God's sovereignty of evil and yet somehow to show gospel goodness and gospel forgiveness, perhaps this message of the good news of Jesus could get out in an even grander atmosphere and platform than if everything just went fine. She was the very first one to come out with accusations as a young lady there in the Midwest. The Indianapolis Star was the first newspaper that broke this whole story. And so she overcame the fear, the humiliation of the whole thing. And she knew, man, if I go public with this and if I step up and just blow the whistle on this whole thing, then I know that anytime anybody Googles my name or wants to be a friend with me on Facebook or whatever else, my name is going to immediately be tied to this awful monster's face. And that's what I'm going to be known as for the rest of my life is somebody that's been abused. We talk about courage and overcoming fear to do that, and she did that, and she was one of the many that was able to, on national and probably international television, be able to read a statement to this man with an audience of millions. And here's what she said. She said, in our early hearings, Larry, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness for what you've done. And so it's on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read that Bible that you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so much that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for a sin he didn't commit. And by his grace, I too choose to love this way, Rachel says. You spoke, Larry, of praying for forgiveness. But if you've really read that Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about all you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror. Without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. And if the Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, you need to realize you have damaged hundreds. But the Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you, Larry. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. What an incredible illustration of a young lady so compelled by the gospel to be able to forgive and communicate that he needs forgiveness. And that the cross of Christ is the only way that that could happen. I don't know where any of this lands on you here um, this morning. But we wanted to do something a little bit differently. We still have one more point and we'll have that here in just a minute. But 
You know, when we look at Scripture and we look at the early church, again, this is a model for us. This is what we want. And it seems like in the American church, there's kind of an unspoken rule in the vast majority of them, okay? Every church is different, but in many churches, there's kind of an unspoken rule that says, you know what? The church out there, like, it's a safe place. Like, we invite anybody to come in. And again, the unspoken rule is that you come in, you find a seat, you sit, you look at the music and enjoy it and maybe sing a little bit and then the preacher comes up and you just sit there and listen or look on your phone. Either way, it's fine. But you don't call people out. You don't embarrass people. Like this is a safe community, a safe place. So what we're attempting to do right now is, is not really safe. Okay, but again, when you look at the early church, they didn't just come in and sit back and listen to one person and maybe, you know, watch a performance up in the center of the room that they were in and just sit there and do nothing. I mean, you see, you get the evidence from this church that, man, this was a praying people. These were people that gathered together and shared from their heart and soul and lifted each other up. And then the idea is they lifted their voices up together, praying for boldness, probably all at the same time. We're not used to that though, right? We like the polite prayers where everybody is very simply, you know, like bowing your head and closing your eyes. And some professional gets up there and just prays a very polite prayer. I don't want to be in that kind of church. Like I want to be in the kind of church and what I see in this kind of church, more importantly, is people begging and pleading with God in honesty of like, hey God, here's what I'm afraid of. Notice what they said is, Lord, consider their threats because I'm considering their threats. So, Lord, give us boldness. Give us strength. And part of that is we need to confess our fears and the things that we're afraid of to you and even to each other. So what I want to do right now as part of the message is I just want to create a little bit of space for four or five minutes and again, I know this is a violation, stark violation of the unwritten understanding that we had when you came in here, right? Leave me alone. Don't require anything of me. I'll just sit. And guess what? We don't require anything of you. You want to just sit, contemplate, close your eyes. Maybe you're here this morning. You're not even a believer. You're just checking things out. Maybe you're just a visitor. And that's, We are so glad you're here no matter what. But what we do want to do is we know that there are many in here that, that are struggling. When you talk about courage and boldness and taking that next step, maybe it's going to be to take that next step to confront your husband on something, confront your wife on something, confront a friend with the truth that needs to be spoken. Maybe it's stepping up in your workplace and really sharing who you really are. Maybe if you're a student, maybe it means somebody that's been your best friend for all these years and they really don't know the truth of the gospel. And it's like, Lord, I need the boldness to share that with them. Lord, your hand is in control of everything. Lord, you, you've divinely placed me in this room, in this work place in this apartment in this subdivision and lord there's something that's coming to my mind right now that i know i'm afraid to do but we need to be praying for boldness spirit led spirit empowered boldness so what i want to do is we're just going to take three or four minutes four or five minutes and i just want you to write where you are Maybe it's going to involve turning around. Maybe it's going to involve standing up. Maybe it's going to involve talking to somebody that you've never talked to before. But what I want to happen here in this community is that we're just going to be praying together for boldness. So it's going to be as easy as, hey, can I pray for you for something? Somebody who's spiritual, somebody who's a believer. 
Can I pray for you? What, what, do you, what step do you need to take this week? And let's lift each other up in this place. Can we do this? Or is this too crazy? If some of you are like, man, I'm never coming to this church again. Like, can we do this? This is what they did with one voice, meaning it was many voices, prayers lifting up to God. So let's just do that, guys. And again, if you want to sit and do nothing quietly, totally fine. But let's stand up. Let's meet somebody. Let's pray for each other. Let's share what we need boldness prayed for in our life. And let's pray that the Spirit of God compels us. Let's take a couple minutes and do that right now. Create this space to do that right now. Yes, God, we just recognize that all of these prayers going up to you, Lord, you're not confused by them. It's not just mindless chatter to you. You know each heart. You hear each prayer. You see each tear. You know each story. Lord, we thank you so much for that. And Father, we pray that you would allow us to be a people that show compelling, exceptional, surprising, overwhelming boldness. Not because we're so strong, but because we're so weak. And because you're the one that strengthens us, God. We just thank you for those promises and we thank you for this illustration in your word, Father. We love you. In your son's name, amen. I'm just going to invite you all to stand. I just want to close with this last point. It's a short one, don't worry. What do we see what happened? They were compelled by the Spirit to go out with that boldness. Let me just read this uh, passage for you before we sing. It says, and now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants, continue to speak with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal with signs and wonders as they're performed through the name of Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What did that look like? Can you imagine? It wasn't polite, I promise you that. But they were people that loved each other and they loved God and they weren't afraid because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Check out this for 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. We'll just close with this. God gave us a spirit not of fear. If you're afraid, if you're holding back, if you've reached that limit, that's not coming from God. That's not his spirit, but instead power and love and self-control. And may that be true of us. Church, let's sing together and declare together that no, we're no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of God and we've got his spirit within us if you are a believer this morning. I love the line of this song that says, you split the sea so that I could walk right through it. It's a throwback to the story of Moses, of course, and the Israelites, and when they're stepping through uh, the, the Red Sea there, and it's dangerous. Just imagine looking up at these towering waters. Who knows at any moment if they're going to crash down on us. But God has paved the way. God is in control, and God is inviting us into his great story. So let's sing this out, church, with a whole heart this morning.